New York City, is it dead? Our guest today wrote an article that went viral claiming it was. Somebody else snapped back at him. Who? Another badass Jew. Jerry Seinfeld, as if to claim, what's the deal with this article and why am I reading something on LinkedIn? I live in New York City. These two men, rich versus ultra-rich, badass Jew versus badass Jew, aren't out living it every night. There is a resurgence happening in New York City. There is a renaissance, and it is bohemian in drive, and it may become financial eventually in culture. Stand-up is coming back, although it's illegal. The comics are doing what they have to do. They are being outlaws. Some time has passed, not just since we had James as a guest, but since the article came out. Yeah, New York is down. It's like Rocky Balboa, face beaten up like a sad old sack of meat with Apollo Creed as COVID just standing over it. But somewhere in the back is... Adrian yelling in slow motion, Get up, Rocky! And in this case, Adrian is art. Adrian is rebellion. Adrian is everything that New York City stands for. This is a look inside the brain of badass Jew, James Altucher. I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad, I'm also a Jew, and I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper, I worked in the sex trade, I became a stand-up comedian, and I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there, and let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins, they come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews, and I'm your host, Aaron Berg. Our guest today is the epitome of a badass Jew. Looking at him, you would think the exact opposite. He looks as stereotypical of a Jew as you could ever imagine. So much so, he looks like a drawing of Nazi propaganda. But throughout his life, from being born in New York City, he has won and lost overcome and overcome again. He has hung out with leaders of the free world and some of the biggest losers of the free world. An amazing man, an innovator in terms of finance, and now a cultivator of the arts. Welcome our badass Jew for today, James Altucher. Aaron, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I said yes only because no one has ever called me a badass before. So I had to officially become one by coming on this show. When people look at you, James, they don't think badass you initially, right? You, no, you've had to- People come up to me on the street and they'll ask me for advice about Bitcoin just because yeah. of the way I look. <laughs> and because also you were an expert in Bitcoin. It's not yes. a, a stereotypical thing where they go, that guy looks Jewish. He must be good with money. You were at the forefront of, of the Bitcoin thing and you, you are on all the news channels but you look super jewish our show is about people that have gone a non-traditional jewish route and you've done that there's so much about you that's rebellious so much about you that you shun in terms of 
mainstream culture. So let's start at the beginning. Born in New York, 1968. Yes, and and by the way, I should say I'm practically kicked out of Judaism because I've lost all my money so many times that uh, really the synagogue doesn't want me to potentially ruin their sacred, you know, holy space. Like I'm the Jew who loses all his money constantly. It, that's a very counter jewy thing to do. Uh, in Manhattan, your your parents had you? Yeah, yeah, in Manhattan and in Manhattan now to this day. You live on the Upper West Side. So tell me what it's like being a New Yorker, being born and raised as a Jew in New York. Uh, you know, well, New York in the 70s was 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 horrific. Right. It was just, you know, there was a there's a famous New York Post headline where the president says to the mayor, New York City dropped dead. And, you know, New York was bankrupt. The subways were disgusting, even worse than now. So I grew up part of the time in the suburbs in New Jersey, which was a very Jewish thing to do, uh, was to go with the 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 exodus. Uh, the What do you call it? The diaspora mm -hmm. of Jews out of New York City to New Jersey and Long Island and so on. And then, uh, you know, I had a normal life, but then eventually moved back to New York in the early 90s. And this new thing was happening that was so exciting, which was the internet was going mainstream. And there were about five of us in the city who knew how to make a website back in 1994. And so that kind of started me off on a particular direction. I was so excited about this brand new thing. And everyone thought I was going insane. Like, James, James, I worked at HBO and people would say to me, James, the, the internet might have been good for academics or when you were in college, but why don't you let HBO do what they're good at? Like they know the, they know network, they know entertainment better than anyone else. Let them do the cable thing, not this internet thing. And so they thought it was going to be worth zero. So while I was at HBO, I started on the side helping other companies build their websites. So uh, it was crazy. I'd work all day at HBO and my salary was a massive 40,000 a year. I couldn't afford to live anywhere in Manhattan. I'd, I'd lived with my parents. And, and then at night I'd be working on like with the Wu-Tang Clan, I'd be working on the Loud Records website and the Wu-Tang Clan's websites. And then I started doing all of Puffy's websites. Then I started doing Death Row Records websites. Um, you know, Miramax.com, I did that. I did uh, the Matrix, all the Matrix websites, the Scream movies, everything. Anyway, I, on the side, while I was making my measly 40,000 a year that I was afraid to give up, I started a company a few blocks away and I started to hire employees and I started to get all these clients. I made AmericanExpress.com. And again, I had no competition. Normally, nobody would hang out. Nobody would hire somebody. I, I had like one outfit. And I would pull it out of my garbage bag every day in my studio apartment that eventually I afforded. And then I would go to American Express and convince them that, hey, one day you're going to be doing all your business on a website. And they would just laugh and, and then they would hire me. And they would hire me with, for what they thought were ridiculously cheap prices. But like I charged $250,000 to make AmericanExpress.com when my full-time job was paying me $40,000 a year. Yeah. And and it was crazy because I still wouldn't leave my full-time job. I was so scared to leave even though I had at some point I had, you know, over a dozen employees, then 15 employees, then 20 employees, then I had to build out 
10,000 square foot of space. Then I had every gangster rap record label. I was doing all of their websites. And of course, you know, in addition to being Jewish, I look very much like a gangster rapper, as you've often called me. And, you know, and then things took off from there. So let me backtrack, be, be, because this this was the inception of your career. But where did this come from? Were, both your parents were Jewish. Yeah. Uh, conservative, reform. Uh, communist. Co- so, just communist. Yeah, so they, they grew up with no, you know, Marxism. There's no uh, religion, right? So they did not grow up with any Judaism at all. And you were bar mitzvahed? Yeah, I was bar mitzvahed. I wanted to be bar mitzvahed. I wanted to fit in with my Jewish friends, and they were all getting bar mitzvahed. I wanted to have a big party. Your parents did not force you to go to Hebrew school. They didn't want you to have a bar no, mitzvah. It, it was it, idea. Yeah, it was totally my idea. They didn't want to spend the money. So, um, so you say, I want to get bar mitzvah. You want them to throw the party. Where where do you have your bar mitzvah? Uh, in New Jersey. It's just, a, it's, just, it's just a regular suburban everybody gross bar mitzvah where we, we all try cigarettes for the first time in the bathroom at some like, you know, diner. And that was it. And that all was like the friends, last time. All your friends were Jewish at the time? Most of them, yeah. This The need to be accepted into the Jewish community kind of drove you to want to have a bar mitzvah. Yeah, like, let me ask you, do you, can you read or speak Hebrew at all? Barely. Yeah, like, uh, I, like I can't, I, if I were to go to a synagogue now, I don't, or if I go to like, God forbid, a, a Seder, I wouldn't fit in. Like, I wouldn't be able to do anything. I don't know anything. I don't know any of the prayers, nothing. And, I have to read the English transliteration. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and I would barely even be able to do that. Like, all the sounds, <laughs> can't do it. So you're 13, you get bar mitzvah. When do you start to feel this rebellious nature do you feel jewish growing up or do you feel a cultural tie because your parents weren't religious how did you feel about the religion how did you feel about the notion of anti-semitism or israel were these thoughts for you at all zero i'll tell you the closest i got to feeling religious was you know i was imagine a 12 year old 13 year old huge glasses my hair was so tangled, it was practically dreads. I had acne and cysts all over my face and body. I had braces, but it was the kind of braces where it was like, remember the rubber bands and the mm-hmm. silver and, and everything. And then I, I, I was, I, and then my head was like as, at least as big as my entire torso. <laughs> and so I, and I really wanted a girlfriend, which was impossible for me. And like, uh, like in my school, all the, there was a lot of, you know, the jocks were all, you know, blonde haired kids with blue eyes and they got all the girlfriends. So this is the closest I came to religion was I got obsessed with wanting to figure out how to um, astral project, you know, meditate so you could uh, send this, supposedly send this like ghost-like version of yourself out of your body. And then I would find some girl I had a crush on and basically spy on her while invisible, taking clothes. I believed that that was possible. And so I would learn how to meditate because I thought that would lead to me seeing my classmates naked. And that's the closest. I, so I read all these books about like Zen Buddhism because that's how I figured this, it would happen. And that's the closest I got to religion grow, growing up. And 
the goal of your affections, was it primarily Jewish girls? Is that what you were attracted to? No, I liked, well, I liked them all. I liked every girl. <laughs> like if any girl had even looked my way, I would have had an, an, an instant, I would have married her right then at the age of 12. Like that's, I was just obsessed. I would like, and, and, but I was like, I'm, it's bad enough being who I am now. I was hideous at, at the age of 13. So we would learn, I don't know why they would teach us this, but in physical education, we'd learn square dancing. And literally the girls would not, they would hold their hands like three, they would socially distance even while we were supposed to be square dancing together. No one would touch me. And that's it. So I figured my only way was to basically use superpowers, <laughs> which I never got. So you're growing up as an outsider. You turn to Judaism to be accepted, but you still feel like an outsider. You're this weird Zen Buddhist type of Jew, which is kind of like uh, postmodern. It's it's a very popular aspect, you know, like all these Jews that are just into Kabbalah and stuff like that, yeah. like Madonna turned to it. So you had this spiritual aspect to you because you were trying to avoid the physicality of you. You weren't happy with the physical, so you went on the inside. Right, like literally, and this is, this is when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, I was meditating two hours a day. I'd meditate for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, and you know, all my time I would read books about Buddhism, Taoism, because I was sure, and I really had no other motive other than I wanted to develop this imaginary mythical superpower. Uh, most 15, 16 year olds would do something that starts with an M and ends with a Tate uh, one or two hours a day, but it wasn't meditating. Okay. I honestly thought that if I did that, that that would prevent me from successfully astral projecting. <laughs> this is a uh, phenomenal. You may be an alien by this point in time. So how is school going when you're in these teen years? How are you doing in terms of grades? Awful. I, I, I would skip school all the time. I would cut school because there was, I would just, I'd go to school. There would be these huge 25 year olds who are, are still juniors in high school and they would all, you know, push me around and stuff. So I would just cut school all the time. I remember one time I even applied and got a job at a newspaper while I was a, a junior in high school. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I would just start cutting school all the time to go to this job. And uh, then eventually the school called my parents and everybody got upset and I almost got thrown out of school. But I was, I was a horrible student, didn't have good, I had like a, a solid C plus, B minus average. The traditional Jewish route would be uh, you go to school, you get good grades, you do what your friends are doing, you go to law school or you become a doctor. You know right away this isn't for you. Are you do your parents get upset that you're blowing off school, they're getting phone calls, you're going to this part-time job? Yeah, yeah, they were very upset. They were, they were horrified at, at everything I was doing. They thought I was, and I never touched any drugs, but they thought like, why am I just staying in my room for hours at a time with the lights off and like the door locked. They would just thought I was like very strange and unusual. They thought I was on drugs. They wanted me to go for drug tests. I don't even know if there were drug tests then, but they wanted to take me to one. And, uh, you know, and then, and then, but you know, parents back then too were very hands off. Like I didn't, I didn't even see my parents at all. Did you see your parents during the day? 
Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit of a latchkey kid, but, you know, they were always there by dinner. I remember my dad always being home by like five or six, even though he would leave early in the morning. Do you feel like if you had more of a traditional Jewish household, you would have been more focused on school? So in 12th grade, my senior year of high school, I got obsessed with something else, which was I they needed an extra player for my school's chess team. I knew the rules. I didn't know anything else. I went with them. I was playing the bottom, you know, whoever the worst player was on the other team in some other town, I beat the person. And I'm like, oh, this feels good. Like I had some success at something. And so I got obsessed with chess. And and when I say obsessed, like it was 24 hours a day. And so by the end of my senior year, I was the highest ranking um, person under 21, maybe in New Jersey. I was New Jersey's junior state champion. I was one of the top juniors for my age group in the country. And then when I was applying to Cornell and going to the interview, my interviewer was a, a, a lower ranking chess player than me. And he ha- happened to have been, right before I showed up for the interview, he happened to have been studying a game from um, a 1972 match between two great chess players. I was very familiar with the match and I basically gave him a chess lesson as my interview. And I got into Cornell like a day later. Yeah. Now this. Like- I was like, and at that point I was probably the best chess player in the Ivy league at that point. And, but I lost interest in chess. So I, I, I rarely ever played again. Again, non-traditional routes that that keep popping up in your life so you go to cornell how's that what what's the experience like going to a great school when you hate school well it was great because you're free from your home and so i didn't show up for any i didn't go to any classes or anything like that i didn't um i i didn't specialize in anything for my first two years there uh but finally met a girl. And of course, as I had predicted, even when I was 12, I moved in with her instantly. <laughs> as soon as I met her, freshman year. Yeah. And uh, uh, and then I started a business while at Cornell. So I got interested in that. And But I, I, was, I was not showing up for any classes. I remember one time I showed up for a class and no one was there. And I ran into somebody who I recognized in the hallway. I'm like, why wasn't anyone in class? And they said, well, we just it was the final yesterday. Like we, that, there's no class anymore. And so I had to convince the teacher like, Hey, um, I was sick, you know, some BS thing. And he gave me the same final exam that he gave everyone else, which I had a copy of because he had already given it to everyone else. And he let me do it at home. So that was kind of exemplary of the way I passed classes in college. Like there was always, I don't want to say a scheme, but there was always a trick that I had to do to pass. So for instance, I, 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 I had to graduate, I couldn't afford college. So I borrowed to pay for it. And then I worked every summer and I would win chess tournaments. I'd win money at chess tournaments. And then I also s- skipped a year. So I took so many classes at a time that I was able to skip a year, even though I wasn't really going and I wasn't, I, I wasn't getting good grades. And my grades were so poor that I was, a tiny bit below the GPA needed to graduate. And so I, I had to go to a professor who had given me a 
D minus my last semester and convince him to give me a D plus instead of a D minus so I could graduate. And I, but I graduated in three years instead of four. So I saved some money and that was, that was college. So first job out is working for the IT department at HBO. No, well then I went to graduate school. And uh, so what happened was I got really obsessed with computer science and it, once again, bad grades, every grad school rejected me. I applied to 20 grad schools. They all rejected me until one of the best computer science grad schools in the country, they were working on a chess computer and it was the best chess computer in the world. It eventually became the chess computer Deep Blue bought by IBM to beat Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion in the 90s. And they, they had this graduate school, Carnegie Mellon, had a chess master who was a student there, but he had just gotten his PhD and had left. So they needed a chess player. So they accepted, every grad school rejected me. This one, which was like ranked number two or three in the country, accepted me only because of my chess and put me in the, I, my office was me and the chess computer. And I just had to play it all day long so it would learn from, from how I was playing it. And eventually then uh, IBM offered me a job because IBM wanted me to work on the chess computer once they took the chess computer. But I liked a girl in Pittsburgh, so I re rejected that job, stayed in Pittsburgh, and then she broke up with me and I, I went to HBO. Walk me through making the first goal financially. Was it, I want to be a millionaire? Was it, I want to be a multimillionaire? What was the thinking behind getting rich? Or was it just, I want to pursue my passion? It was the, the latter. I had zero interest in money. I, so I had changed obsessions once again. And I, re I really became obsessed with writing novels. So that's why I took the job at HBO was to get a little closer to the entertainment business. And so I really wanted to do a TV show. So here I was, I was this, like my title was junior programmer analyst in the IT department, but I was constantly like sneaking my way over to the CEO's office to pitch TV shows. And um, uh, so I was just, uh, but at the same time, I was, like I said before, there was like only five people in New York City who knew how to build a website then. So HBO gave me money to shoot a pilot of a TV show, amazingly. Like, I don't know why they did it, but in exchange, I was building their website. Now to build their website, they asked me hire a company. So I taught my brother-in-law the, the web and the internet. And I said, you need to pitch uh, every, there's the other five companies are pitching HBO. They're pitching me to do HBO.com. I need you to pitch also. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't speak English. I'm, I'm French. I don't know how to write English. So I wrote his proposal and submitted it to myself. And then I chose the best candidate for the job to, to build <laughs> HBO's website. Which was, which was you, AKA your French brother-in-law. Right. And so, so between, with my brother-in-law, that was our first client. And, uh, and then we started our business on the side and I was running HBO's website. And at the same time, I was going out every Tuesday night at three in the morning, I was going out with a film crew and interviewing people in New York City. What are you doing out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night? 
if like like Aaron, if you were out, what you think about the last time you were out at three or four a.m. on a Tuesday, not on a Saturday, but on a Tuesday, probably nothing good is happening. Now, it might be different for you because comedy happens at night, but for many people, nothing good was happening. It would have been years ago, would have been when I was still drinking. It would have been after stand-up shows all night, and then I would stay out drinking till four in the morning. So I'd be at a bar. I'd be right. you know, trying to meet a girl, getting drunk. That's That would be the gist of it. Right, right. So you would be doing it professionally. In, in, in a weird way, 3 a.m. Was, was, your, was your job. And... But a lot of people on a Saturday night, they're out because they're partying in at the bar. But on a Tuesday night, it was mostly just, particularly in the 90s in New York City, it was mostly, um, you know, hookers, pimps, drug dealers, um, and and their clients, and homeless people, and, and just other shady scenes. So I did this for two and a half years. Every Tuesday and Wednesday night, I'd go out at three in the morning, and I basically turned over every rock in New York City, I interviewed thousands of people. What are you doing outside at three in the morning? And uh, I shot a pilot called 3 a.m. And I also did, made it as a web series on the HBO.com website for, for, for almost three years. I did this and it was, a, it, was a big part of my, it was a big part of my life. But that's what I really wanted to do. And I figured by keeping control of the website with my own company and... Uh, at the same time, making a little bit extra money uh, because not a little bit, but you know, significant extra money because I was started doing more and more websites, and I couldn't slow that part down because my my sister and my brother in law, this was their livelihood, and I was in a weird way the salesperson because my brother in law couldn't speak English, so I was doing I in the middle of the day at HBO, I'd sneak out, get on, put a suit on, go over to J P Morgan pitch them a website, then go back to HBO to continue programming on whatever I was programming on, making 40000 a year. And, you know, and I was doing this every day, stuff like that. Is this built into your DNA? Do, do you feel like you push yourself to be this extraordinary person that you're like, I got to be up first thing in the morning. I got to be the last guy awake. No, How, because- What motivates you? What's, what pushes you? I really wanted to do, I was obsessed with doing a TV show. And I figured I needed a little bit of financial freedom for that. And I, I was still write, trying to write novels. I wrote four novels during this time. None of them ever got published or saw the light of day. And, uh, and, and, and I, didn't, I really hated business. I really hated all the people. I hated everybody I was selling to. And then you have to pretend to be friends with them. And I, you know, I couldn't afford a therapist. So I would see my wife's astrologer and, and tell her I just hated myself because I was pretending to be friends with all these people at death row records when I couldn't stand them. And, uh, uh, and then I was doing my 3am stuff and that's the only thing I really cared about. So finally I saw, uh, my little sister was like in junior high school and she was telling me, Oh, she's learning how to build a website. And I'm thinking to myself, uh Oh, so this thing that I'm charging hundreds of thousands of dollars per client for, you're learning in junior high school. This is not a good idea anymore. So I aggressively tried to sell the business, which I succeed. I, I left HBO finally because I, I made it my full-time job to sell this business. And I, I sold it in 1998 and I made a, a, a lot of money. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I still keep in touch with some of those clients that I had then, like, you know, 
you know, at these record labels and movie studios and so on. You're hanging out with, you know, gangster rappers. And here you are, this little nerdy Jew that's really good at chess and computers. What's that like? Are there any highlights that that pop out of those meetings and those hangs? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, look, I'd be meeting with. So the Wu-Tang Clan had this manager, uh, Power. His, His name was Power. And he like. He, you know, the Wu Tang Clan, they were all into chess. So he'd like want to go with me. I'd go to this place in Harlem where everybody was a really good chess player, this one park on 148th and St. Nick. And he'd want to go and play and hang out. And uh, he, he was like, Hey, man, you're part of the Wu Tang family. And uh, old Dirty Bastard would call me up and, you know, we'd talk about his website. Mob Deep would hang out in our offices. And you could see each, everybody, they all had, you know, two or three guns apiece. And, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty, there were so many crazy things. Like, you know, we did the websites, you know, again, we did Harvey Weinstein's websites. And so I would hear just horror stories about that guy. And so this is back in, in the innovative days of Miramax when they were just starting. Yeah. I mean, they had started and, um, I remember we did the scream website, uh, and then the scream two and scream three. Uh, did you meet? Harvey Weinstein or was this no no but but everybody was terrified of him like they were terrified like they every, he would just fire people at a, if he didn't like the way you tied your shoes he would fire you so the, so so it was so much pressure you know looking back now it wasn't the people that would tie their shoes it was the people <laughs> that would untie their shoes that he right that was the problem but the, it was more immediate the people who were tying them incorrectly yeah and uh uh, you know, we did uh, New Line Films, October Films. Then we started doing, uh, we did The Matrix, all the websites for The Matrix movies. And uh, it was, you know, there were some fun moments, but I really, I don't like business. Like you even see me at the comedy club. I couldn't tell you the first thing about running a comedy club and I own a comedy club. Yeah. So uh, it's, I'm not really, I kind of just almost luck into it. Like, so we would start doing all of, loud records websites so that would be wu-tang clan mob deep some other artists and then puffy would be like okay we need a website so i'd start doing bad boy bad boy records websites okay then then interscope why we need a website we can't let these guys do it so start doing death row interscope uh it's just kind of word of mouth i kept doing more and more websites but i was also desperate to sell because i saw the light or, or the I saw where the tunnel was going, and it wasn't very pretty. Like this, you knew kids were going to be able to do this in a couple of years, right? And here's what a bad businessman I was: is that I wrote software to make it really easy for my. Someone would hire me to build a website for like sixty thousand dollars, but I wrote software for myself that I wouldn't show anybody that would let me build a website in basically a matter of minutes, and. This, the reason I say I was stupid is that we were a very profitable company. If I had said, no, 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 don't be profitable. Let's sell the software to build websites. That would have made me a lot more money. Like WordPress is worth over a billion dollars. So, so I made the mistake of hiding the software because I didn't want people to know. It only took me a few minutes to create something that I was charging $60,000 for. And, and so we were just a profitable internet company, the only one maybe. And so we didn't get as much money, say, as some of our our competitors and peers. You're doing websites for 
all the rappers at this time, all the prevalent rappers, knowing that there's like an East Coast, West Coast rivalry, that some of these people would literally murder other people. Oh, yeah. I, I remember one and time. And you're the common core between all these rap rivalries. Do they know that you're doing all the websites for all these labels? Oh, yeah. And they were, I think there's a thing where it's like they would look at me and I would look at them and we each really didn't know how it was just different backgrounds. Like one time I was having dinner with a guy at death row who had just gotten out of jail. And he was like, man, if, 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 if Snoop shows his face, then we know where to find him. And like, everybody was just talking this talk. And then, but they were always like, Hey man, we'd love, love to stop by your office and see how, you know, do videos and graphics and stuff. Like, you know, all that computer stuff, can you show us? And and I'm like, oh, well, we just work at home. We don't really have an office. We had an office, but the guy from death row wasn't coming to it. So, uh, you know, it was just like they, in a weird way, we were each intimidated by the other. And, uh, but it was, you know, that part was interesting. And I was very much into that um, culture to some extent. I mean, I knew a lot about it. And we even tried to make a record label at one point, but it, it didn't work out. We, we were always trying to figure out some way out of that, horrible internet business like i hated it we tried to make a tea company we tried to make a record label and at the same time i had the software written to make a billion dollar company but instead uh, i was just dealing with all these clients that were uh, i really just disliked them i don't want to say they were idiots because they were very smart but uh i just didn't like them right now you're hanging out with rappers where does your interest for currency come in and how were you so on the cutting edge of knowing where Bitcoin was going? Well, for a long time, so after I sold this first company, I, had, I didn't know anything about money. I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know anything about money. Everybody was asking me for money advice because they thought because I had some money, I must know something. I bought the most expensive apartment in New York City and I started investing in internet companies and blah, blah, blah. I, I went from having 15 million cash in the bank. Like it was, I had cashed out. It was cash. It was in my checking account. And then there was a point, and then I lost so much money so quickly. I was losing a million dollars a week. And at one point I looked at my ATM and I had $143 left. How did you lose a million dollars a week? I was just investing during this dot-com bust and I bought a huge apartment. I re-retrofitted it, whatever. Uh, the apartment was two blocks away from a, a little building called the World Trade Center. And so right when I went broke, we were, the, our building was part of the crime scene. So I couldn't sell then. And I just went completely dead broke. And I was so just depressed. Like I had two little babies at this point. So let me say this, $15 million dollars. Within two months, you have $143 and you can't access your apartment because it's mere feet from the World Trade Center. Yeah, I was in my apartment, but nobody else could access it. So it was about, it was about a five, six month period. But yeah, I was at the World Trade Center when the planes hit. So, uh, uh, and then I, I, and then just our building was- You were at the World Trade Center when the, inside or in your apartment? No, here's what happened. I was, there was a Dean and DeLuca. I was a day trader then, uh, which is fitting considering I was losing all my money day trading. And I was, my, 
I had a trading partner. We were in the Dean and DeLuca on the first floor next in the borders with, uh, uh, of the World Trade Center. And we were one block away. We were walking to my home slash office. And my friend asked me, hey, is the president coming into town today? That looks like Air Force One. And at that single moment, everybody on the street almost like instinctively ducked, even though the plane was 600 feet higher. And we all just watched it like a, a split second later, go straight into the building with our eyes, like not, not on TV. Like later, everybody saw it on TV. Uh, nobody saw the crash on TV, but the, the, you see the, the, the fire and everything. But we saw the crash right then on, uh, of the first plane. And it, 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 you know, then we didn't know what to do. So we, we, you know, my friend, your brain plays tricks on you when you see a plane crash or when this thing happens. And so I was convinced that it was a remote control accident, that somebody was just playing with a 747 and had crashed it into the World Trade Center by accident. And that fortunately, it was too early for anyone to be there, even though it was like almost 9 a.m. So my brain was, but my friend was saying, no, 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 we're being attacked. So we run to the fire station right next to my apartment and we say can we help and they throw us a bunch of fire suits uh, firemen suits and and then they say wait wait are you guys firemen and we said no but we want to help and they said no 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 only firemen and so they all left and we're just standing there at the fire station it was empty they all left for the world trade center a hundred percent of them died and uh we go up to my building and my apartment and, you know, a bunch of people are there. My, I had two babies. They were like crying and everybody's crying. Uh, my business partner was crying. And yeah, so then the, then the buildings fell, the black cloud, you know, surrounded us. And, you know, that was, that was 9-11. was much worse for so many other people. So I don't really, it, what, I, what happened to me pales in comparison. But essentially that day I went totally broke zero. And, you know, and afterwards, just the combination of those events and going broke, I was like suicidally depressed. Uh, and I figured I had this life insurance policy from the time when I had money. And I figured my kids were just babies. They're not going to remember me, but they'll benefit from this life insurance policy. So I tried to figure out if I could kill myself without anybody realizing it was suicide because I didn't want the insurance policy to be nullified by suicide and I couldn't figure it out. So, and, and I, so I lived and it took me years to basically climb out of that hole. Like I, uh, eventually the house was just lost. I, I, I moved 80 miles North and into a tiny, tiny place and kind of, I had no money and just treaded water for a little while. And I got little jobs writing here and there. And then I kind of figured some things out and started new businesses. And what are you doing with the kids during this time? The kids come with you 80 miles north of the city? Yeah. Yeah. So the kids are with me. My wife's with me. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, you know, it's one of these times when, you know, you find out who your real friends are. And which is to say, I actually had zero friends at this point and nobody. And, uh, so there was, I had no opportunities, nobody to call, nothing to do. And so I wrote some software to model the stock market. So I took every piece of stock market data since the end of World War II, and I, used, I wrote some artificial intelligence programs to figure out patterns 
in the market where it was statistically reliable that I could, could, could make trades given certain conditions and make money. They would be, they were, it was a high statistical probability that they would make money. So I started doing that and it worked really well. And I turned that into a business. So other, so essentially other billionaires or hundred millionaires would invest money with me to invest using this software, which was triggering signals every single day, like all day long. And at the same time, I finally put my writing to use. I was writing for the Financial Times, for the Wall Street Journal. I started writing books about investing. And so I had two separate careers going on, one investing and one writing. And then I combined them. I built a website that was like a social network for investing. I sold that four months after I started it. I sold it for $10 million. And a year later, I was broke, dead broke again. And again. I lost that house that I was in that time. <laughs> I was. I didn't know anything. I was like an idiot. The, now I'm, the, I'm, the I'm second like, time. The second time. Well, yeah. By the way, I'm skipping. That was the third time. But yes. Okay. So the, what was the second time? The the there's a 15 million loss in less than two months. 10 million. Five months. Five months was the 15 million, and then um, 10 million took me about a year, and then there was this time. Um, somehow it happened. I was part of a uh, part owner or beneficiary of a drug rehab facility for teenagers. And I sold, I helped the real owner sell that for $41 million. And I took a piece of that, which I immediately, uh, um, I, I, I had, the IRS wrote me a letter in, in 2004. And they said, you know, Mr. Al, dear Mr. Altucher, it's come to our attention. You haven't paid your taxes in 17 years. And so I owed all the money I made from that drug rehab thing to the IRS and I was broke again. Which was so, in the millions? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then so I was making a living from the hedge fund and the writing. I was making a good living. I was writing books. I had, I had multiple, as they say, I had multiple sources of income and I was doing good with investing at this point, but not enough to really create wealth. So that's why I started then this, this sort of, I called it a MySpace of finance because MySpace was big then. And um, which is an odd story later because then I became friends with Tom, who was the, if you ever joined MySpace, your first friend would have been Tom. Right. And so I'm skipping ahead, but it's like 12 years later, I get this phone call and I pick it up and this guy says, this is Tom. And I'm like, Tom who? And he says, I'm Tom, I'm MySpace Tom. And he, he said, I've been reading your books and your stuff. This is like in 2013. I'm skipping ahead a bunch of years. And he's like, I don't have any. I, I was the guy who had 500 million friends. And now I don't have any friends, but I like your book. So I wanted to call you and I found your number. And he's like, let's hang out or something. And then I just, and then literally he would call me like every now and then I would never pick up the phone again when, when he called. I was he didn't just like, want to talk to Tom because he was a I, MySpace nerd. No, I just felt awkward about it. I just felt weird. Like I didn't, I don't know why I never picked up the phone again. You ever feel like just awkward talking to somebody? Um, very rarely, but on yeah, I, I think, I think you're, it's probably very rare for you. You saw 9-11 happen with your own eyes. Right. Months later, we find out how it's caused. Yeah. So I was, I couldn't, so, so obviously I couldn't sell my apartment because it was right next to 9-11. So this is one of the ways I went broke is that ultimately I couldn't pay the mortgage either. I couldn't afford anything. So I stopped paying the mortgage, so on. And all the time, could you imagine like I had just 
seen this. And like as a society, we saw it, but I saw it with my eyes, saw the people jumping off the building, landing right in front of me. And, you know, then lost my home, went broke. And I was just scared all the time. Finance attracts some really shady people because there's people that are looking to expand their wealth and there's as good as you can be at it. It is a game, right? So you look at people that find the shady ways. You had a, an experience with Bernie Madoff, who's a prime example. Yeah. Of that. So, so I was, I had this, I was running a, what's called a hedge fund after I had started investing a little bit more successfully. And uh, my next door neighbor says to me, Hey, my boss would love to meet you. Uh, he also runs a hedge fund. Maybe he'll invest in your hedge fund. And so I go up and visit him. He, um, his boss, very nice guy, gives me this tour around the facility and we sit down in his office and he's like, okay, James, what do you want? Um, and I said, well, I was hoping you could invest in my fund. And he said, James, you could have a job here anytime you want. If you just walked in here and told me any day, I would love to work here, you're hired. But uh, reputation is everything. I have no idea where, and it's very important to us here. I have no idea where you're putting your money. If I give you money, I don't know if it's going to go into some criminal thing or not. And the last thing we need to see is the name, is, is our name, Bernard Madoff Securities LLC on the front page of the New York Times. And so Bernie Madoff rejected me, investing in me. And I left his building, it was the Lipstick Building on 53rd Street, I left his building really depressed. I was like, gosh, how am I? He's this guy's a genius and he has all these great returns. Everybody's invested in him and he won't even invest in me. And, and uh, I, I literally shut down my business because of Bernie Madoff. I figured I can't compete and the competition's too strong. I, I, shut, I shut down my hedge fund and that's when I started this, this web, this like MySpace for finance company. So shady dealings made you a success in life. No, the being rejected by all the either either being incompetent or being rejected somehow has here is my one secret that actually finally let me turn the ship is that I finally said to myself, I am the stupidest person in every room I'm in. And then I only invested in companies if everybody else was smarter than me. And so only then. I started successfully making money and holding on to it because I would never make any decision about my money unless somebody a thousand times smarter than me was alongside me. So I would invest in a company only if let's say Peter Thiel was also investing in it side by side with me. Cause then I figured I never have to think about this again. Peter Thiel's the founder of PayPal, the first investor in Facebook, he's in this, I'm leaving it to him. And every deal I've done since then, except buying a comedy club, I had the same strategy and it's always worked. And of course, the one time I don't use this strategy, it's the worst investment ever is buying a comedy club. Let me ask you this, to make millions and then lose millions. And the earlier thing that you mentioned was you had this uh, early inkling towards spirituality. So do, do these two things combine and contribute to your minimalism? Because somewhere it says that you only own 15 things in order to practice minimalism. Is there truth to that? Yeah. So, so well, no, I, I, I don't believe that was minimalism. Um, I actually really don't. Uh, I'm a minimalist in the sense that I don't really like to own things. So, so there was a period 
where I didn't want to own a house and I didn't want to rent an apartment. So I would just live from Airbnb to Airbnb. I threw, I, I got a friend of mine to throw out everything that was in my apartment, 40 years of junk in my apartment, uh, diplomas, uh, all the books I had written, you know, in different languages and, you know, all my books I had a comic book collection. I had all this stuff and I pay, I got this friend to, it, it took her eight straight days with her whole family helping her. She threw out everything I owned, just threw it out or gave it away or kept, I don't even know what she did with it. And I came home from a trip and I had no place to go. I, my rent was over. I had no home. And so I just started living for two and a half years. I just lived in Airbnbs and I would move every three days all around the country. And, uh, and, and, and then the New York Times heard about this somehow. I don't even really know how they heard about it. And so they did this whole profile in the Sunday fashion section, which I always remind my daughters of, that you can't talk to me about fashion because I'm the one on the front page of the fashion section in the New York Times. And, uh, and I, then Airbnb read it, and I, I spoke at the Airbnb Open. I got to know all the founders of Airbnb. Steven Spielberg's office calls me. I fly out to LA, and they want, they're pitching shows to me about a guy who just lives in Airbnbs. And, uh, you know, and that led to a whole bunch of stuff. And it was just, that was just a crazy period because part of the reason I did that was I was dating someone who was, let's just say, physically abusive. <laughs> and so. Uh, that was know, a pretty exact thing. <laughs> it's not. A- yes. Right. So she would, she would basically, she smashed like five computers in a row over me. And I was renting an apartment from this a pop singer who called me up one day and said, what the hell is going on there? You, why is everybody hearing so much noise that you're all the, you know, the upstairs is the upstairs and the downstairs to keep hearing this woman screaming. And I'm like, Vanessa, you have to kick me out of your apartment. Just kick me out. And, and I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the deposit back, but kick me out as fast as possible. So she kicked me out and then I use that as an excuse to then say, hey, I got no place. I'm just going. And that's how I ended that relationship. And the apartment was gone. And then I, I wasn't a minimalist. I was just kind of on the run, <laughs> just Airbnb all over the country. And, 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 I, and I liked it. I, I liked only having, I, w- I made sure I never bought anything unless I threw something out of my carry-on bag. So I basically had like about a dozen or so items in my carry-on bag for, for two and a half years. And that's how, that's how I lived until, until I got into this apartment that, that I'm in right now. There is this essential view of Jews as wanderers. And whether you know it or not, you've taken that on because you wander between professions. You wander between wealth and poverty and you literally wander in terms of where you live, like where you're living now, you've been set up for a while, but it's been this badass journey of being a failure in school to being, uh, you know, a, a titan of finance to losing everything, repeating it, and it's basically like wash, rinse, repeat with you. And it's, yeah, and I, I would say eventually I learned my mistakes in the sense that you could only lose all your money so many times before you start to self-reflect and say, how could I have done this again? Like there must be something really glaringly obvious. And so, so I corrected course 
fortunately, and, and have done, oh, money's never been my goal. Otherwise, trust me, I would not be performing stand-up comedy five nights a week and owning a comedy club. Right. As you know, so, that is not the path to wealth. <laughs> let's, let's be there now. You, you own stand-up New York, uh, which is a comedy club on the Upper West Side. In terms of the people that you bring in, there's a, there's a badass quality to it. I've been there. Uh, Roseanne Barr, after being canceled, did her first live thing uh, there. You've had other comics that have been canceled. I, now, you're not in charge of booking, but there's something about you that goes into that club, and I know everybody at that club. Yeah, no, I think... Tell me, tell me why you're so drawn to stand-up, why you want to be good at it, and, and why you continue to bring in these habitual line steppers. <laughs> well, when I was at HBO, I worked a little bit with HBO Comedy. I was constantly going to all the comedy clubs Back in the 90s, I would go out to the Aspen Comedy Festival. I was going, I was just, I was really into the, the subculture, but I was terrified to actually do stand-up on stage. And so finally in 2015, I tried it a couple of times and I got obsessed. And maybe, maybe I didn't get obsessed till about 2016, but literally I got obsessed. And it's out of all the skills I've had to learn, whether it was entrepreneurship, writing, computers, chess, investing, comedy is by, stand-up comedy specifically is by far the hardest skill I've had to learn. And it is, it is a difficult skill. And so, uh, and this is why I stopped doing the Airbnbs is that stand-up New York at the time was the only club that would have me perform there. So in the Upper West Side, there were no Airbnbs available. There was like some laws passed. And so I finally rented an apartment across the street from the club so I would have eat, and then, and then I was kind of worried. This is not necessarily the worry wasn't necessarily rational. I was kind of worried they were going to go out of business. So I bought essentially half the club, so that the, to make sure they wouldn't go out of business. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't want this club to go up because the apartment I'm renting is close to it. <laughs> right. I didn't want to have to like travel all the way down to like the Grizzly Pair or whatever, which I've done many times as well, or whatever. Any of these clubs. You know, pretty much the only one is the comedy seller I haven't performed at, although I've been on their um, podcast and, and so on. But uh, yeah, I got obsessed. And then I've, I've now traveled all over the country. I've traveled to other countries doing stand-up. Right before this pandemic, right before this lockdown, Tony Woods and I went to five cities in the Netherlands to perform. So it's, it's, been, it's been a ride. And, and I... And I'm still at the beginning of it. It's, it's, it's such a fascinating skill. You get in trouble sometimes, and it's not your stand-up that does that. Sometimes your writing uh, gets you in trouble because of your opinions and because you think outside the box. Um, you shared with me the fact that you were getting numerous death threats per yeah. day. Tell me the most recent experience and how a badass like you deals with stuff like that. Well, it's probably every day anyway, because if you have an opinion right now in life, there's going to be half the world will like you and half the world will hate you. And if you have opinions, but you, but some of my opinions are on one side and some of my opinions might be on another side. Like just recently I, I made the comment that it seems like everyone who's for a lockdown seems to be either rich or has a steady paycheck. And yet uh, people who want the economies open up, they're hungry and they're starving. And I'm, 
you know, I volunteer at a church and a food line and I see them on these lines, like people I know who, who, you know, and, and, and we all know people, employees at all these clubs and, and employees at the restaurants. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a community business owner now. So I know all the people and all the different businesses. Yeah. There's so much suffering happening. And I, and I couldn't, and so I would say like, we should, uh, you know, we should open up the economy. And I, I didn't think it was political. And suddenly like, everybody's like, Oh, you know, people sending me emails, pe- people tweeting at me, people, you know, stopping me on the street. People just say like, Oh man, I hope you die rather than get your stock market profits. I'm not even invested in the stock market. And so, uh, you know, but a few years ago it was on the Bitcoin stuff. So I was a real big advocate for Bitcoin and people who were also advocates for Bitcoin, they hated me because I was advertising. I was selling a Bitcoin newsletter to help people avoid scams. And People who are really into Bitcoin were, were basically saying uh, all day long, this guy should just die. I can't stand this guy. And I got one email, um, uh, you know, oh, this was on a different topic. I, was, I, thought, I thought all colleges should shut down. And so I got an email from a guy and said, uh, you know, I wanna, I, if, if I saw you, I would slice you up and put you through a wheat thresher, which I didn't even know what a wheat thresher was. And it turns out this guy was a student at Brown University. So I called the Brown University like head of security. And he and he's like, oh yeah, we knew we know this guy. He's threatened a librarian before. And uh <laughs> he he does not like people with glasses, James. Right, or this Jews, a, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And uh I said, Well, don't you think you should do something about it? And and he's like, Look, I'll do whatever you want. But he's a senior, he's about to graduate. Do you really want to ruin this guy's career? And I'm like, I don't know, I kind of do. And he's like, ah, come on, do you really? And so he, I, he basically talked me out of like doing anything serious. But uh, one time, so many people were angry at me on Twitter. And I, you, sometimes you get sucked into it. It was like two in the morning. And I tweeted out my phone number. And I said, if anyone has a problem with me, call me right now. And so for the next 12 hours, people were calling me from all over the world. And they would be surprised I actually picked up the phone and talked to them. And then everybody was, you, when they talk to you, people are, okay, but it's just the, the, the kind of mask of social media and the anonymity often that's there and, and the distance is uh, people get, have, have violent tendencies. You showed me like literal texts from people where the one guy said, oh, yeah, yeah. there is no other choice for me but to find you and kill you. Yeah, and he's and a Canadian, by the way. <laughs> so I think a- that... He's a Canadian. I think that's the only thing that helps me is that stop immigration from Canada. It's a bunch of murderers there. I, I'm a very nice person and I was able to come here. Uh, yeah, he said he said I was a, a Zionist psychopath and he accused me of planting a chip in his brain. And I, his blog, his website was called James Altucher is a, a lying Zionist psychopath. And that's his, the title of his website. Like, that's his domain name. Well, and- if you hang on one second, we are Skyping in right now that guy to chat with you. So, All right, bring, bring him on. <laughs> okay. So your advice to Jews that feel like they're young, they're covered in acne, they have glasses, they have disheveled hair, they're never going to be anything what would be your advice to those young Jews that want to be a success like you are? I do have concrete advice and it's going to sound simplistic and corny, but it's get a waiter's pad and every day 
start writing 10 ideas a day. If every single day, ideas are, are a muscle. And if you don't use that muscle, just like, you know, Aaron, let me ask you, if you didn't work out every day, how many days would it take before your muscles would shrivel up? Well, I'm in fantastic shape, so probably at least 60 to 90 days. Okay, so if you don't use your idea muscle for 60 to 90 days, and this applies to the entire universe, your idea muscle will shrivel up and disappear. And that's, by the way, the average person. So every day since I had this realization, I write down 10 ideas a day. And by the way, that also means I try to take care of myself or else I won't be creative. I try to be around people who I like as opposed to people I hate, else I won't be creative. But my ideas, your idea muscle turns into like a super muscle. Like, like you, get, you get jacked with the idea muscle. And I still, I write 10 ideas every day and it's amazing the results. Like I wrote an idea list the other day, uh, uh, TV shows that I would pitch to Disney because little kids would like them. And so I made a list of, of 10 TV show ideas I just sent it cold to Disney and they responded. And I had a meeting with Disney yesterday to go over my TV show ideas. So every day something happens because of this one technique that I've never stopped doing in the past like 12 years. It's amazing. And then the, and then, and then the other advice is always be the stupidest person in the room. There you have it. James Altucher, thank you for being a badass Jew. Thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you for inviting me.